0: Welcome to the Cytokine Signaling Forum's Highlights from ACR 2021, where authors will take us through their posters and presentations on cytokine signaling, JAK inhibitors, and in this podcast, considerations surrounding COVID-19. My name is Len Calabrese. I'm the head of the Cleveland Clinic section of Clinical Immunology. I do not have to tell you that COVID has had a huge impact on almost every facet of life this year, and clinical practice has certainly been no exception. Lockdowns and restrictions have changed the way that we manage our patients. And in this edition of our ACR 2021 highlights, we look at the impact of these changes that they've had on our practices. Hi, I'm Dan
1: Solomon. I'm a professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. And I'm presenting today on behalf of my co authors who are listed here. Here are some disclosures. And here are some evidence based medicine references. As we all know, that during the uh, 2020 pandemic, our waiting rooms emptied and we quickly switched to virtual visits. This was something that happened in the United States as well as around the world. Virtual visits um, during the COVID pandemic increased 30 to 40-fold during the first year of the pandemic. And while all clinicians have experience with episodic telephone visits, ongoing care using video is an area where few of us have extensive experience. Many suggestions were made available through social media, but really little data exist on how effective virtual visits are. Specifically in rheumatology care, where the physical exam is so critical, we all uh, wondered whether the care we were providing was effective. We had the opportunity uh, during the COVID pandemic to study virtual visits compared to in-person visits in the setting of a learning collaborative. We had pursued a learning collaborative in 2016 and 17 called Traction. A Learning Collaborative is a group quality improvement project that entails developing a change package uh, with faculty, selecting teams, Um, and in this case, these teams were from around the United States, and typically a Learning Collaborative has an in-person learning session where faculty discuss um, the change package and aspects of the learning collaborative, and then ongoing learning sessions can occur in person or virtually. In the setting of our um, learning collaborative in 2020, this all happened virtually. Our earlier version of the traction collaborative focused on treat-to-target in rheumatoid arthritis. And our um, outcome of interest was adherence with treat-to-target based on several different aspects of treat-to-target, including disease activity measurement, um, identification of a disease activity target, modification of treatment based on disease activity measurement and target, and shared decision-making. In our prior randomized trial traction in 2017, we found that the 11 sites that were involved started out with an adherence close to 11%, but after the nine months of the Learning Collaborative, their adherence went up to approximately 50 to 55%. The aims of our current dissemination study were first to test the feasibility of a wider dissemination methods for the Traction Learning Collaborative, and we've presented some of this in poster number 815 on Sunday of the ACR meeting. Today I'm going to discuss specifically comparing treat-to-target in the setting of virtual visits versus in-person visits. This was a single-arm demonstration project, and initially the face-to-face kickoff had been planned for May of 2020 but it went completely virtual and started in October of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. Again, this allowed us to further examine Virtual Learning Collaborative and to compare treat-to-target adherence during virtual visits to the in-person visits. We recruited 18 sites, representing 10 states across the United States and the District of Columbia. None of them were in the original Traction Learning Collaborative. Here's a schedule of our uh, six months of the learning collaborative. During month zero, we had a kickoff. This was all virtual. A five to six hour meeting where we had all faculty involved. They lectured. We discussed treat to target. We discussed PD essays or plan do study act cycles. And there was a substantial time for team building. Learning sessions two through seven are shown below. And each one was um, focused on a different aspect of the learning collaborative with different faculty engaged. They were all done virtually. Here's the data collection form that was used. We asked sites to collect data on 20 to 25 rheumatoid arthritis patients in the week before each of the virtual monthly seminars. We asked them to give us a modicum of information, all de-identified focused on the aspects um, of treat-to-target that we were most interested in uh, for the adherence calculation, so the disease activity measurement, the targets, whether um, disease um, modifying agents were changed if patients were not at target, and any evidence of shared decision-making when decisions were being made. Again, our primary outcome was the percent adherence of treat-to-target, And this um, entailed the presence of a recognized disease activity measure, identification of a stated disease activity target, documented plan for treatment if the disease activity measure was not at the stated target, and if decisions about treatment or target were being made, description of the shared decision-making process. Here's some data on our 18 sites. You can see that uh, some of them were academic, um, some of them were not. They were uh, ranged in size uh, based on the number of RA patients from relatively small to large. The virtual visits during the learning collaborative, some sites had uh, very few uh, uh, virtual visits and some had um, a large proportion. The types of visits that we included were primarily routine visits as shown below and there were some urgent and some initial consults. You can see that over this uh, six months of the uh, learning collaborative, the mean percent adherence went from 50% up to about 75%. So this is um, starting at a higher baseline than we saw about four years ago with our original traction learning collaborative. Um, And uh, we saw a similar um, robust statistically significant increase over the six months. If we look at the specific aspects of treat-to-target that we've um, examined, disease activity measure, target, um, changing DMARDs, and shared decision-making, you can see that the in-person at a higher rate compared to virtual visits for everything except shared decision-making. However, it's important to note that um, over the months that we measured treat-to-target in in in-person and virtual visits separately, you can see that the Virtual visits started out much lower, and then caught up to the in-person visits. So this is in green and this is in red. The in-person in red, um, again, was much higher. So some of the limitations is that this was only done in the United States and only among 18 U.S. sites. We allowed the sites to self-assessment of to target adherence. And clinical outcomes were not examined, but we know that treat-to-target is associated with improved clinical outcomes. So in conclusion, self-reported adherence with treat-to-target improves during a virtual learning collaborative. Adherence with treat-to-target during virtual visits improved similarly to in-person visits. And a learning collaborative helped improve adherence with treat-to-target during virtual visits to the point where adherence was very similar to the in-person visits. I want to thank you for your attention
2: and um, uh, hope you enjoy the ACR this year. Hi there, my name is Philip Robinson and I'm from the University of Queensland and I'm presenting this work today on behalf of a number of authors listed here and it's the minimal impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on patient-reported disease activity and health-related quality of life in patients with ankylosing spondylitis receiving bimacuzumab. So bimacuzumab is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits both 17A and 17F and it's been demonstrated to be pretty efficacious and pretty well tolerated in those of AS uh, for up to three years in, a, in the 2B, B Agile study. So um, there are a number of different findings from real world studies about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on patients And quality of life in those with enclosing spondylitis, and they've been variable. So, in this study, we wanted to use this open label extension study to assess what the impact of the COVID 19 pandemic was, and also the obviously the changes in society that went on on health related quality of life and patient reported disease activity uh, in this group of enclosing spondylitis patients getting bimakizumab. So uh, patients completed uh, the week 48 of the Agile study um, were then uh, eligible to enter the open label extension and a total of 303 patients were randomized at baseline and approximately 84% of those went on to be enrolled in the open label extension and they received 160 milligrams uh, of bimacuzumabib for four weeks. So the, for this the purpose of this study, we defined the pandemic um, as the 11th of March, which is the date that the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. And at that point, most patients have been on biomikersivab for around three years. And so this analysis presents data from September 2019 through to April 2021. And the two primary things we're reporting is the BASDI and the ASQOL from the start of the pandemic, as well as mean scores during the pre-pandemic and pandemic period. So let's look at the results. So the patient demographics and characteristics are shown in Table 1, and most patients are from Eastern Europe. The mean age is 42, and they're around uh, 85% males. So it's a typical Um, ankylosing spondylitis cohort, and you can see that uh, HLA-B27 was around 90%. Uh, Disease duration is around five years. Um, If we uh, look at table two, these are disease characteristics, both at the baseline of the Agile study and also at the start of the pandemic. So you can see there as their CRP on entry to the study and also the as their CRP at the time when they entered the the pandemic. So you can see that um, the effect of the bimacuzumab there, including BASDI, BASFI, and the uh, CRP, you can see all those, the changes across that time period was the effect of the bimacuzumab. So if we look at patient outcomes, so changes in the, um, the BASDI and the ASQOL from the start of the pandemic uh, is shown in figure 1A and 1B. So these are the time uh, since the start of the pandemic by patient visit. So it's, I agree, it uh, looks busy um, because each mark represents a single patient visit. So during the pandemic period between March 2020 and April 21, there were no sort of notable changes seen in either of these different outcomes since the last pre-pandemic visit, which uh, you can uh, see on the left. Uh, If we look at patient outcomes, so the mean BASDI and ASQL scores during the pre-pandemic and the pandemic period, these are shown in figure two, um, and you can see that they remain stable at around sort of 2.4 during the pre-pandemic period to 2.2 during the last pandemic period and uh, figure 2B shows the stability of the ASQOL during this period too. So it's a little bit more variable, but um, there were no significant um, uh, changes across time. So I think from this data, we can conclude uh, that in patients with ankylosing spondylitis receiving bimacuzumab every four weeks um, and having done so for around three years in an open-label extension study in Eastern Europe, Uh, Disease activity, as assessed by BASDI, and health related quality of life evaluated with the ASQOL, remained pretty stable during the pandemic. And there were no indications, at least in this data set, which was drawn from mostly Eastern Europe, the Czech Republic, Poland and Russia, um, that there were no indicators of negative impacts on at least these outcomes in these studies. So um, our findings differ from some other real-world uh, studies evaluating impact of the pandemic. Um, and this is obviously a slightly different setting um, in an open-label extension than from real-world studies, um, but certainly it is reassuring that at least in this data set, and which is potentially more rigorously collected than some real-world data sets, uh, that these two uh, outcomes were stable over time.
3: So I thank you very much. Hi, it's uh, Dr. Kevin Winthrop, uh, infectious disease professor and public health professor here at Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon. I wanna thank the CSF gang for uh, allowing me to um, briefly uh, introduce a poster that uh, I was part of its presentation at the recent ACR meeting that was virtual. Uh, This was actually first authored by uh, Richard Howard, uh, and I was part of this uh, team that was evaluating uh, the risks of COVID-19 among patients with spondylarthritis. And as background, we all we all know about this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there's from the beginning been uh, many questions about whether uh, individuals with various rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases are at higher risk uh, for COVID-19 or severity of COVID-19 presentations based on their disease. Uh, and or their therapies, and I think um, you know, what we've learned at this point is, is there are subgroups of patients at higher risk, uh, but, but probably most of that is driven by the, the therapies and not necessarily um, the underlying disease. This was the, the first look, or at least the largest look, at individuals with spondylo- spondyloarthropathy or, or SPA. Um, you know, the, the way this was conducted was a little bit different than the global... Uh, Rheumatology Alliance and many of the other registries that were out there to uh, help answer this question. Most of those relied on physician reporting. This was actually a direct survey of patients. And from April 10th, 2020 to April 26th, 2021, so roughly a year, we conducted this web-based longitudinal survey uh, of spa patients, uh, some of whom had COVID-19. Uh, most of these patients were in North America, and these were individuals that are registered within the Spondylitis Association of America, uh, their, their own uh, registry. And um, this was our way of distributing uh, this survey. Additional surveys were also distributed uh, based on lists provided by the, the ASIF, or the Axial Spondyloarthritis International Federation Uh, And of course, we translated the uh, survey into uh, up to 15 languages as needed to accommodate those those, uh, members. So uh, individuals were asked uh, specifically whether they'd had COVID or not, whether it was uh, molecularly confirmed or not. Demographic factors were collected. Uh, Disease activity was asked about as well as um, DMARDS that were being used currently to treat their disease. Uh, Briefly, our results. So to our knowledge, this was the largest study to date looking at spa patients in COVID-19. We received responses from uh, over 4,700 subjects with spa. We also asked um, the spa patients to enroll household contacts or household members uh, into the survey as well. Uh, as we thought this would be an issue and control group, uh, and we found uh, 450 individuals who participated in the survey that were household um, contacts with with subjects with spa who participated uh, most of these individuals were in the US about 65% 8% in Canada. Uh, the remaining uh, quarter were from uh, seventy-two other countries. Seventy uh, percent of the U.S. respondents provided longitudinal data. The majority were female, sixty-three percent. Median ages were right around uh, fifty or forty-nine for females and fifty-four for males. Um, the several spa forms of SPA were reported, with most patients uh, saying they had ankylosing spondylitis, or eighty-four percent of individuals saying they had AS. So, many patients reported uh, being exposed to COVID-19, 19.6% during this year or at the time of their their survey. Uh, And of those, um, about 295 had had a confirmatory positive test to COVID. And there were a number of patients also who had unconfirmed reports of COVID-19, meaning they weren't tested um, and that was so. Overall, we had 384 cases, or 8.2 percent of people, either having molecularly confirmed or a suspect um, uh, case of COVID-19. So, in Table One, you can see our main uh, results. This is the analysis of medication usage uh, in our uh, estimates of susceptibility and severity of COVID-19 based on these reports, and um, what we found is there's a number of cases reported by individuals using uh, the medicines listed in this table. Uh, you can see that you know the, the medicine usage here probably reflects the, the usual meds used in this condition. Many patients on anti-TNF therapy, many patients on NSAIDs, uh, and then fewer patients in other um, DMARD groups. Um, we put the number of COVID-19 cases in the first column there of the table. You can see that and how they distribute with the reported therapies. Uh, we compared the, the number of cases or the, the risk or instance of cases among those DMAR groups with individuals who were reporting no medication use. You can see the rate ratio there and in confidence intervals. Uh, the bottom line was that the, none of these uh, DMR therapies appeared to be associated with a higher self-reported incidence of COVID uh, than um, the no medication at all. Uh, one thing I'd point out is there is a bit higher risk ratio of self asalazine 1.53, although this was not uh, statistically significant. Uh, we were able to follow that up a bit more with some additional um, surveys after this time period uh, there was a correspondence we published in ARD actually uh, very recently commenting on this and also showing that that, that rate ratio went down when we uh, got more data. So We did not find a, a statistically significant increased risk of, of either COVID or, COVID or severe COVID with sulfasalazine um, in this analysis. Now, this is somewhat distinct from the Global Alliance data, which looked at sulfasalazine um, across the various conditions. and. Um, predominantly in RA, um, there, was, there was a statistically significant increased risk of co- severe COVID in RA patients using self uh, The reason for that, none of us know, um, and I, I don't think it's real, actually. We don't think self-salzine diminishes immune defenses uh, against viruses or really anything else. So it's probably an artifact of residual confounding uh, within RA. Uh, within the, the AS and uh, SPA data here, we did not see the um, uh, same effect with sulfasalzine. So, so again, I, I think probably within RA, that issue that was seen in the GRA data is uh, probably due to residual confounding. So so what about this, this work here? In summary, we, we obviously are limited, this is a survey, it's a patient survey. Um, it has inherent limitations with regards to uh, bias, uh, as well as confounding um, due to a variety of factors. so so I it is what it is, as as my wife likes to say. <laughs> it's a survey, but I, I think it's important that that we did find that, SPA patients didn't seem to be more likely to get COVID than their household controls, which I did not mention that data, but it is buried in the results here that the the 450 controls, there was no higher rate of COVID in those individuals than the subjects with SPA. Uh, On the other hand, these are small numbers of people and uh, particularly with the household contacts. Um, I think one unique feature of this analysis is it, it did capture some longitudinal data over the course of the year these individuals were uh, surveyed at multiple time points or, or many of them were. Um, so that I think that was um, important. Of course, where this will go and how this will change over the next year, um, we don't know. We do have a follow-up uh, project looking at uh, vaccine acceptance and hesitancy in this group. Uh, of course, we're hoping that everyone is getting vaccinated, uh, but, but I'll, I'll be able to comment on that uh, to a greater extent later. So I, I think that probably summarizes this abstract satisfactorily, and um, I hope you uh, are enjoying the pandemic. Thank you.
4: Hello everyone, I'm Athanasios Bakasis from University of Athens in Greece, and I will be presenting data from a study focusing on the clinical presentation and outcomes of COVID nineteen in patients with autoimmune and auto-inflammatory rheumatic diseases. I would like to thank Professor Mavragani and Professor Mutsopoulos for giving me the opportunity to present our findings today. There are no relevant disclosures. Here is a list of key references to the topic. As known, individuals infected by the novel coronavirus can experience a wide range of clinical manifestations, from no symptoms to critical illness. Based on the NIH classification, the clinical spectrum of SARS-CoV-2 infection is as follows. Asymptomatic infections, individuals who have been tested positive, but who have no symptoms consistent with COVID-19. Mild illness, individuals who have any COVID-19 related symptom or sign, but no shortness of breath or abnormal chest imaging. Moderate, individuals who show evidence of low respiratory disease during clinical assessment or imaging and who have oxygen saturation above 94%. Severe, patients with low respiratory disease and who have oxygen saturation below 94% or lung infiltrates in more than 50% of their lung parenchyma. Critical patients with respiratory failure, septic shock, or multiple organ dysfunction. Patients with certain characteristics and underlying comorbidities are increased risk for severe COVID-19. These comorbidities include being aged 65 years or older, smoking, having cardiovascular disease, chronic lung disease, diabetes mellitus, chronic kidney disease, and obesity. But what about this immunocompromised state? Are patients with rheumatic diseases in increased risk for severe COVID-19 by virtue of their disease and its treatment? For sure, some patients are vulnerable to infections due to their underlying rheumatic disease and its treatment. But in case of COVID-19, something might change. Severe COVID-19 is characterized on one hand by an aberrant production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, the so-called cytokine storm, which triggers monocyte and neutrophil recruitment, vascular leakage and further tissue damage. On the other hand, by an impaired and delayed type one interferon production that is otherwise crucial for viral clearance during the early stage of infection. Therefore, it was speculated that anticytokine drugs might ameliorate the clinical picture of COVID-19 and that heightened type one interference signature that characterizes certain autoimmune diseases might have been protective. All this motivated the conduction of the following prospective observational study, assessing the clinical presentation, the COVID-19 course, and COVID-19 related hospitalization and death in patients with autoimmune and autoinflammatory rheumatic diseases. From the beginning of the pandemic, consecutive patients followed in four outpatient rheumatology clinics in the area of Athens in Greece, were given a questionnaire, and in case of SARS-CoV-2 infection, were encouraged to notify the treating physician for further guidance. From March 2020 to September 2021, 100 rheumatic disease patients infected by SARS-CoV-2 self-referred to us. The mean age was 50 years old, with the majority of them being females. The most common diagnoses were rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, Sjogren's syndrome, systemic sclerosis, and seronegative arthritis. The most common comorbidities included pre existing lung disease, mostly attributed to the underlying rheumatic disease, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and dyslipidemia. Three fourths of patients were either asymptomatic on follow up or had a mild COVID 19 course. 14% experienced a moderate COVID 19 course, while only 15% developed severe or critical illness. The most common symptoms reported were fatigue, low-grade fever, and cough in 57, 41, and 40% of cases, respectively. High-grade fever, myalgias, anosmia, headache, and diarrhea was the second most commonly occurring set of symptoms, ranging from 26 to 33% of cases. The median duration of symptoms was 10 days. When patients with severe or critical COVID-19 were compared to patients with asymptomatic, mild or moderate illness, the former were significantly older, had more frequently pre-existing lung disease, were more often treated with mucophenolate and experienced high-grade fever and shortness of breath in high rates. On the contrary, Patients with mild or moderate COVID-19 experienced low-grade fever and anosmia in high rates. Following multivariable analysis, only AIDS was identified as an independent risk factor for severe and critical outcomes. Similarly, when the 23 hospitalized patients were compared to the 77 patients recovering at home, The former were significantly older, had more frequently pre-existing lung disease and dyslipidemia, were more often treated with mucophenolate and corticosteroids, and experienced high-grade fever and shortness of breath in high rates. On the contrary, low-grade fever and anosmia were once again more often in the non-hospitalized subgroup. Following multivariable analysis, older age, treatment with corticosteroids or mucophenolate, and high-grade fever were identified as independent risk factors for COVID-19 related hospitalization. Among the the hospitalized patients, the most common laboratory abnormalities noticed were anemia, lymphopenia, and increased liver enzymes and C-reactive protein. Chest X-ray abnormalities were noticed in 70% of hospitalized patients with the majority of them having lung infiltrates in less than 50% of their lung parenchyma. Of note, only 60% of hospitalized patients developed hypoxemia and needed oxygen supply. When patients with autoimmune diseases were compared to patients with autoinflammatory diseases, no differences were noticed. In this case series, only one disease exacerbation was noticed regarding a young male patient diagnosed with a periodic fever syndrome, otherwise in remission on colchicine. After infection, he developed a generalized skin rash accompanied by thralgias at the peak of the fever, a symptomatology that completely subsided following an increase in colchicine dose of note the two patients in critical condition presenting all risk factors for COVID-19-related hospitalization and death, while only one death occurred. So in conclusion, in this relatively small observational study and in line with other published literature, it was shown that the majority of rheumatic disease patients present with mild COVID-19 non-specific symptomatology, like fatigue, low-grade fever, and musculoskeletal complaints are common, and thus, we should be highly alert. Comorbidities, like older age and pre-existing lung disease, and treatment with corticosteroids and mucophenolate are risk factors for COVID-19-related hospitalization. Mortality seems to be generally similar to the one observed in the general population, while disease flares are rather an infrequent phenomenon. Thank you for your time.
5: My name is Kelly Gavigan. I am the Manager of Research and Data Science with the Global Healthy Living Foundation. Um, I work primarily in research, primarily with our Arthritis Power Research Registry app. Um, and I, I work primarily in analyzing and managing the data that we collect from the research registry from over 34,000 patients um, who are part of arthritis power. And I also work on research studies, much like the one that I'll be discussing today. So the abstract that I'm discussing today um, presented at ACR is changes in patient-reported outcome scores during the COVID-19 pandemic, data from the Arthritis Power Research Registry. So as a little bit of background, basically we've known since early on in the COVID-19 pandemic that patients with autoimmune and rheumatic diseases are at an increased risk of infection. And this has created a heightened sense of isolation among these patients because many follow strict social distancing protocols. Um, so, our objective for this study was to determine whether the mean patient reported outcome scores for mental, social, and physical health fluctuated throughout the COVID 19 pandemic among the autoimmune and rheumatic disease patients in our Arthritis Power Research Registry. So, Arthritis Power is an online registry that's used both for research purposes, but it's also used for patients to track their symptoms their medications, and just their overall disease management over time. So for the purpose of this study, we looked at the results of physical, mental, and social health promise measures among arthritis power participants between the months of January 2020 and April 2021. Um, And we looked at participants who provided at least two sets of PRO assessments during this timeframe. And as I said, we used promise measures, uh, which are scored 0 to 100 with the general population mean um, of 50. And 10 points is the standard deviation of the reference population. Um, so for the study, we tested the null hypothesis that there was no change in monthly average promise uh, scores across the 15 month period from January 2020 until April of 2021. So we had over 2,200 participants that were included in the analysis and we had an average of 4.5 observations per participant. We found that scores for anger and anxiety measures were one standard deviation higher than the overall study period mean for those measures. And depression scores were one half standard deviation worse than the overall study period mean during the months of May and June of 2020. In terms of social health, we found that social isolation scores were also highest in June and the emotional support scores were worsened in December of 2020. However, during this time, we found that the physical health assessment scores did not meaningfully vary from the overall mean throughout the observation period. And you can actually see in the poster um, that the scores for anger, anxiety, uh, depression, and emotional support, uh, which are um, on the the figure, uh, the orange, um, the yellow dotted, the yellowish green dotted, and the green uh, towards the bottom dotted lines. These um, scores for these measures have big peaks and dips throughout this period, Um, whereas most of the scores for most of the other measures, which were primarily physical health measures, they're pretty steady along this chart. So it was really clear from our findings that mental health scores fluctuated significantly throughout this 15 month period um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially during the first US wave of the pandemic in spring of 2020. And while it was surprising to us that the scores for the physical health assessments did not meaningfully vary during this time, it was certainly reassuring that the participants rheumatic disease wasn't worsening throughout the pandemic. However, the mental health concerns and the social support of rheumatic disease patients certainly deserves attention By providers and caregivers, especially during a health crisis like what we're experiencing right now. And the results of this study certainly uh, back that up.
0: Thanks for joining us for this edition of our ACR Highlight Series. I hope you enjoyed these presentations. Make sure to subscribe to CSF Podcasts on Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on our great Congress content or any of our other usual monthly podcasts. You can also visit CSF web pages on cytokinesignaling.com, where you can access a whole range of resources from monthly slide summaries or the latest papers to accredited CME courses and even more content in between. Thanks for listening and come back often.